The Lord be with you. It's a joy to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning, to worship, to pray, to experience the love of God through the family and the people of God. This morning, our text from the Old Testament, I think, is very fitting. I've entitled my message, The Others. Great movie, if you want to check it out. The Others. (laughs) And everybody laughing knows I probably shouldn't have said that. (laughs) I grew up with my father, who was a preacher, uh, regularly making fun of an old Philip Bliss hymn. I feel like I can say that because I doubt that it's any of your favorites. But if it is your favorite hymn, I'm not making fun of it. I'm just pointing out that my father made fun of it. And the refrain, it wasn't a chorus, it was a refrain, it went this way, hold the fort, for I am coming, Jesus signals still, wave the answer back to heaven, by thy grace we will, hold the fort. There is a tendency within the church to have a fortress mentality. Specifically in that our inclination is toward isolation. We want to hold up and isolate ourselves. And a lot of this is rooted in ideology, worldviews. It's a very strong us versus them mentality. And I think that this inclination toward isolation is fueled by at least two things. Number one is the fear that we're going to be rejected by outsiders. The people who are not part of us will reject us. And number two is I think we're, we're afraid of infection from outsiders. I'm not talking about sanctuary per se. I found in my experience in the church that As I interact with other pastors, my family, extended family, aunts and uncles and great aunts and great uncles and second and third cousins, as I talk with them, my in-laws and all sorts of people who I love, there is this inclination and it's, it's nuanced, it's different from person to person to isolate ourselves from the outsider. And this is a problem because God has always insisted that his, on the one hand, his people need to always be fundamentally distinct, unique, holy, weird, whatever word you want to use there. And holy is a troubling word for a lot of us based on our background because if we're not careful, holiness quickly devolves into morality and ethics. And we do great harm to ourselves and to the people around us with this word holy and holiness. The problem is God is holy. He's thrice holy. We will say that later this morning. Holy, holy, holy. God is different. That word in the Hebrew really just speaks to other. He is other, other, other. I often say, if you handed George Washington an iPhone, it would be holy to him. Right? 
He could not wrap his mind around this. He hasn't seen a black and white television. Could not imagine you could ask this thing questions and it would answer you. If we dismiss holiness, if we dismiss otherness, if we dismiss the fact that something unique is going on in God, in Christ, in the Spirit, and in his church, if we dismiss that, then there's really no point in doing what we're doing. The giving of our time, of our talents, of our resources, it doesn't make any sense if this is not fundamentally different in terms of reality. On the other hand, if we reduce holiness to some sort of ethics standard or benchmark, it becomes nothing more than how to get in the club. Well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't walk with those who do. Come on, somebody. I was waiting for somebody to finish that sentence. Everybody that came up in a holiness church, they know that that awful line. I don't smoke, I don't drink, and I don't chew, and I don't walk with those who do. And that was my best chance of getting somebody to respond. I don't think the next service is going to know that joke at all. I don't know. <laughs> but we love them. I didn't mean it that in a bad way. I didn't mean that. Let me get out of here. This is, I'm in a bad spot right now. The point being, I think in our church world, and I am making a generalization, but I think it's worth the risk here. I think in the church world, there is an inclination towards isolation. And as the culture becomes increasingly secular, we're more prone to hold up and to isolate ourselves, to hold the fort waiting for Jesus to show up and just burn them all up or vacuum us out, one or the other. The problem is, this is not just a church issue. This is a broader issue. This is a social issue. Okay? In the church world, it's like we have ideological others. We have people that don't believe like we believe. But socially, we all have relational others. Some of them are in our families. Some of them are in our neighborhoods, the workplace, across all strata of society and in all sorts of relationships, we also tend to isolate ourselves by way of this us and them construct. Our culture is deeply isolated. As many of you know, I'm from New York. I was born in Staten Island. My, my family's from Brooklyn. New York is the only place where 1,000 people can live in a high-rise and nobody knows each other. They're in the same building, and they don't know each other. All it takes is a quick search through the New York Times, and you can find article upon article about the crisis of isolation in New York City culture. And I don't think it's just New York City. Oklahomans are much nicer, and everybody said, I'm trying. I'm trying to get all the amens I can get. On some level, when you live in an isolated culture, you yourself will tend to feel like the other. What we do is we protect ourselves. We protect ourselves by cultivating indifference. We cultivate indifference. And what that does is that limits our relational risks. If you can't hurt me, I'm safe. 
So we cultivate this indifference to limit and reduce relational liabilities and exposure. I really think there's a, a mentality there of scarcity where we think that we, we can, even on a subconscious level, perceive other people as threats to our happiness. There's only so much happiness to go around. Elie Wiesel said it best. I've heard several people quote him, and often they don't give him the credit for it, but he said this. He said, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of beauty is not ugliness. It's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy. It's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, but indifference between life and death. This is what I mean by isolating ourselves. I don't mean that we have animosity towards people. I don't mean that we're looking to start uh, fights with other people or gossip about people or tear other people down. I'm saying that whether it's the church world or the personal world, there is a tendency. It may not be you, but it may. There is a tendency to have a fortress mentality where we build up walls to keep ourselves safe. And we don't have to be angry at people. We just have to have space. We have to have that secure wall. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorites, he said this, we do not believe that everyone around us is our enemy, but we behave as if they are. And suddenly we realize that we have become strangers in our own land, fearful, isolated, and powerless. Instead of self-confidence and freedom, we experience anxiety and paralysis. Look at this line. The higher we build our walls, the more we hide the misery behind them. This is not God, what God wants for his people. Jesus came that we would have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life is not a life that is isolated from other people, isolated from reality, isolated from the work of God that is happening apart from your part of the world. What did Jesus say in that same chapter in John 10? He said, I have sheep that you don't even know about. That doesn't get preached much in our churches. This text this morning from Isaiah 56 highlights Israel's relationship with who I'm calling the others, the others. For them, others, if you read the entirety of the chapter, would include eunuchs. Others were foreigners. Maybe for us, others are Republicans or Democrats. Maybe for us, it's illegal immigrants or it's CEOs and businessmen that live on Wall Street, work on Wall Street. National Israel understood these complexities all too well. Not long after the miracle of the Red Sea, Yahweh approached them in Exodus 19. And listen to what he said to them. He said, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, look at this phrase, you shall be my treasured possession. And the next word there is important, out, out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but 
you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. This is troubling even to many contemporary Jewish people. Back in New York, I was very good friends with the local rabbi, and we were out one night. It was a priest, a minister, and a rabbi uh, at the local bar. And uh, we were a walking punchline, the three of us, Presbyterian, the Episcopal, and the, the Jew. And, and, and he said to me, he said, there's nothing more that bothers us than this idea that somehow Abraham was special. It offends our sensibilities. It seems very arrogant. Who are we to say we're special? So troubling. Because we know the heart of God is for all people. This is where the tension and the paradox seems to lie. Is that we tend to create others in our relationships, but then it looks like here God is creating others just for himself. You're coming out of all the people to be mine. And, of course, this was deeply connected to his command that all of the indigenous peoples in Canaan must be driven out. And he says in there, in the the Torah, he tells them that they must be driven out because he does not want Israel intermarrying with the indigenous peoples because they would turn their hearts away from him. This is Israel's struggle. Israel's struggle, on the one hand, to embody a call to holiness amidst the cultures of the world, and often swinging between the poles of prejudice on the one hand and complicity and compromise on the other. It's common knowledge, I think, that Jewish people, certainly by the time of Christ, they would refer to Gentiles as dogs. There's another text in the Gospels. I believe it's today's text in the Gospels with the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, where Jesus refers to her as a dog. There is this sense of division, of others, outsiders. And of course, Israel, on the one hand, when it was convenient, would stop condemning the outsider, and they would come alongside them as if there were no difference as if there was no covenant, as if there was no exodus. This, of course, is at the heart of why Israel was sent off into exile. Israel lost the land that was given and was sent off to the nations that were so admired as slaves. They went for 70-plus years. Many never returned, forever scattered throughout the earth. Isaiah 56 picks up, most scholars believe, with Israel returning, the remnant returning to Palestine, the remnant coming back. And God says through his prophet, guys, you have gone back and forth now, either looking down the end of your nose at other people or acting like there's nothing special about our relationship. Let's get this on track now that you have returned to Canaan. And what does he say in this very first verse of chapter 56? He says, live out righteousness and justice in your everyday lives. Take it seriously. Look at this in the message. He says, guard my common good. 
do what's right and do it in the right way. For salvation is just around the corner. My setting things right is about to go into action. What is God saying? He's saying, you have to take justice seriously. You cannot live in this space and act like things don't matter, like there is no right and wrong, like there are no consequences. You can't live that way. And then on the other hand, he says this, I am going to come back and really set everything right. That's a beautiful tension. That's not a hold the fort for I'm coming. That's saying this, live like a preview. The best analogy I ever heard for this is this idea, right, of a movie preview. When you go to the movies, you will sit through 20 minutes of torture or ecstasy, depending on your personality, where you're going to watch advertisements known as previews over and over and over again. If a preview does its job well, it gives you, A, an idea of what the movie's all about, and, B, a deep desire to see it in its entirety. We are meant to be a preview of a coming king and a coming justice that's not meant to be the whole movie. We don't have the chops, the skills, or the script to walk out the entirety of the age to come now. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to embody, to give people a taste of what this is going to be like so that they desperately want to see it. They mark it on their calendar and say, this is coming up and I don't want to miss it. That's why we live in justice now. We don't live in justice now to somehow make ourselves better than other people. We don't live in justice now under the delusion that we have the capacity to set all things to rights. We don't. Look at what God says. He says, Live justly. Live for righteousness right now that you're back in Palestine, that you're back in Canaan. But remember, I'm coming with my salvation. Don't think that your justice is the end all. At the heart of God setting things right is the inclusion of the others, the outsiders. Israel had had converts and proselytes throughout its history but there were always major asterisks with that. If we read Isaiah 56, we could possibly see an amending of the law of Moses. You see, Isaiah is welcoming eunuchs and foreigners. Even though Deuteronomy chapter 23, it keeps out those whose male organ is cut off. That was a Sunday school favorite of all of us. Paul specifically asked that I include that reference this morning. (laughs) Deuteronomy 23 is significant, though, because it's the second telling of the law, right? So it's the second giving of the law. And in the second giving, Moses goes out of his way to make it clear. If you are a male whose whose sex organs are damaged, destroyed, cut off, you're not to enter the, the household of God. And if you're an Ammonite, if you're a Moabite, you're not welcome here. And when you read Isaiah 56, what does it deal with in sequence? It deals with eunuchs and foreigners. Because what we're reading in Isaiah 56 is on the cusp of this glorious 
arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus, so much so that as we read this text, look, it says three things that God says he's going to do for the others. Number one, he says, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will bring them. This is God acting. Who's he bringing? Foreigners, outsiders, people different than us, people quote-unquote less than us, less holy than us, less pure than us. God says, I will bring them to my holy mountain. That's intimacy, proximity, and closeness to Almighty God. Secondly, he says, I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. Filling them with joy is very interesting because he's not saying he'll make them happy. The difference between happiness and joy is that one, in some way, is conditioned by what's happening. Happiness. It's based on a circumstantial reality. Joy is altogether different. It's a settledness within the soul that all things are right. And when he says, I will fill them with joy, it's a sense of personal fulfillment and wholeness and completeness. Things are right with me and the world. God says to the outsider, he says to the others, I'm going to do that for you. And thirdly, he says, I will accept their burnt offerings. And this speaks to effectiveness in the spiritual life. Has anybody ever felt like it's a struggle to get traction in your spiritual life? (laughs) Like you're praying and you're just spinning your wheels. You're praising and you're spinning your wheels. You're studying. You're giving. He says, I'm going to do something for these others, for these outsiders, so that when they bring an offering, it's accepted. This entire text, of course, reminds us of Jesus cleansing Herod's temple in Mark chapter 11, because Jesus quotes this text in that story. If you'll use your imagination with me this morning, Jesus, the setting of the cleansing of the temple, is in the court of the Gentiles. This, of course, has been erected by Herod the Great, a building project meant to communicate his power, his excellence, a political maneuver par excellence, The court of the Gentiles is 500 yards long, 325 yards wide. Not feet, yards. It is 35 acres. It's huge, surrounded by Corinthian columns that are 30 feet high, and it would take three men touching hands to get themselves around it. This is a massive place where business is being conducted. We know that in A.D. 66, according to Josephus, more than 250,000 lambs were sold in this space at Passover. That's a lot of animals. And we know those weren't the only animals they were selling. A quarter million beasts plus oxen, plus doves, plus, plus, plus. What else were they doing? They're changing money because this is the temple and they will not accept coins that have an image on them. So they change out all the money that people have for the Tyrian shekel, which is pure metal and has no image. 
these things were all technically necessary for the worship of Jehovah. It just happened to be convenient for the Sanhedrin and the leaders because they were also profiting off of this necessary endeavor. What's interesting is that the expectation of the time among the Jews was that Messiah would come and that he would purge Jerusalem and he would purge the temple of Gentiles. The Gentiles would all be cast out. In your spare time, if you want to read the Psalms of Solomon, you can look that up. What's interesting in the story of Mark 11 is that Jesus goes after the Sanhedrin, not the Gentiles. He goes into the court of the Gentiles, not to clear the temple of Gentiles, but to clear the temple for the Gentiles. Let me say that again. He didn't clear the temple of Gentiles. He cleared the temple for Gentiles. You see, he comes in and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is radical talk, but it is prophetic language taken from our text this morning in Isaiah 56. I have often heard this text used to emphasize the prayer thing, that this is supposed to be a house of prayer. I haven't heard so much emphasis on the all nations part. And I wonder if it's because it's easier for us to call one another to essential spiritual practices than it is to call us to a different way of living with people. I can convince you that you need to pray more, but I can't convince you to open up your arms to the others. This is what Jesus was getting at. You see, our others need names and faces, not labels or demographics. Don't lump people up into a group based on ethnicity or politics or economics. Put a name and a face on your other. I think when we start to do this, we will enter into a freedom. We will enter into a freshness, into a joy that comes from leaving our fortresses. Look at it this way, speaking of ideologies. If what you believe is ultimately true, engaging the other is not a threat. Engaging the other is an opportunity to bless them and have your understanding of what is true clarified. If your truth is not nearly as truthy as you thought it was, Engaging the other is going to be a blessing to you, isn't it? Because you're going to have an opportunity to edit and amend your understanding. This is the freedom that the people of God are called to because ultimately we're not defined by truth with a small T anyway. We're defined by truth with a big T. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He, a person with a name and a face is our security, is our identity, is our life. And he is the one who goes into the court of the Gentiles, quoting Isaiah and saying, these people belong. They were always meant to be here. They're not others. They're ours. They're not outsiders. 
They are us. I think there's a hint of the Garden of Eden here because we can be naked and not be ashamed. We don't need fig leaves. We don't need fortress walls. This call to embrace the others in our lives is very uncomfortable for many of us. As a matter of fact, it may not even be something we want to do. In other words, it may be beyond our desires, not just our abilities, but our desires. See, fortresses can be very comfortable places. Fortresses can be beautiful places. And they're very hard to leave. And yes, in case you're thinking of this, uh, God's precious city of Jerusalem, Zion, is a walled city. But the prophet also says this about that city. It says, your gates will never be shut. In that case, the walls are not used for anything other than definition. This is the place. And wide open gates are like arms extended, welcoming the outsider, welcoming the other. Our nation is embroiled in a conflict right now with the other. Alt-right, alt-left, Democrat, Republican, black, white, law enforcement. There's all sorts of conflict and complexity on every side. And at the heart of it, on some level, could we consider the possibility that what's fueling this is our fear of the other? It's not the entirety of the story, but it certainly has to be part of it. The fear that somehow the other displaces us, that somehow the fear inflames these emotions and activities that are going on around us. And I think we've all figured out by now that the solution is well beyond the reach of politics. I got an amen. Not only is the call to embrace the other beyond politics, it's really beyond ourselves. The ability to embrace the other lies in the realm where God is central. He's vital. He's not a nicety. He's not a a side dish. He's not an add-on. God is not a champagne toast. He's fresh water for the deer that's panting for its life. This is what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Whether we're approaching this as the Christian church and the need for the church to not be a fortress, but the need for the church to be open to the world with arms extended. Whether we think of this as individuals and our social relationships, all of this is beyond our ability. If God doesn't help us, we don't have hope. If God doesn't change our hearts and our minds, we don't have hope. Nobody wants to be our pet project. Nobody wants to say, well, the pastor on Sunday said I have to be nice to somebody I normally don't like, so can I take you to coffee? (laughs) 
Something's got to happen in here, right? Something's got to happen in our hearts. And that's the realm of God's touch. That's the realm of God's hand. And that's why this morning in the lectionary, our reading from the Old Testament is not just Isaiah 56. It's Isaiah 56 coupled with Psalm 67. Because this call to embrace the other, this call that the foreigner would find themselves on God's holy mountain, in God's house, filled with joy, offering acceptable sacrifices. This is so far beyond us. We can't just announce the prophetic. We have to pray. And that's why you can't just read Isaiah 56. You have to pray Psalm 67. And so normally... We spend time at the end of a service, in, uh, at the end of a sermon, excuse me, in reflection, in quietness. And what I'm going to invite you to do is I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Not as a rote thing, but just as a, as, a, as a way to focus our hearts and our minds. And I want you to listen to the words. I'm the other lectionary reader this morning. And I'm going to read Psalm 67. And I want these words to get deep into your heart this morning. And let's all just sit with them for a couple minutes. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known upon the earth, that your saving power would be known among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. May God continue to bless us. Let all the ends of the earth revere him.